Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Well, if you could uh, keep your Bibles open at Matthew 26 and uh, page 998 in particular. And uh, the verse I want to focus down on in the first of these short meditations is Matthew chapter 26 and verse 74, which is the climax of Peter's denial of Jesus. Peter's the first of three characters I want to consider across these three short talks, the others being Judas and then Jesus himself. And we're picking up Matthew's account here at the point where Jesus himself is being formally questioned by the high priest and all the other chief priests and the temple establishment. Well, while that high drama is going on inside, at the very same time, at the very same time, Peter is outside in the courtyard and he's also being questioned. Uh, Not formally this time, not by the high priest, but by two servant girls and some other random onlookers. They all recognize him as one of Jesus' followers. Twice he has denied it. Uh, Then verse 73, after a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them, for your accent gives you away. And verse 74 gives us Peter's final response. Then he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. And immediately a cock crowed. I wonder what comes into your mind when you hear that word curse. Have you ever thought of yourself as a cursed person or or under a curse? It may seem to you a word from an older, darker, more superstitious age. In the ancient world, people used curses in in the belief that they could manipulate the underworld, manipulate the forces of the dead to attack their enemies. They'd write a curse on a tablet, for example, or get a magic man to do it for them and hide the tablet in their their enemy's house and and hope that something bad would come of them. Such dabbling in the occult is, of course, not unheard of today. It even happens in this country, but for most of it, it probably seems a little silly and unpleasant. It's the stuff of those old horror films. You know, the curse of Frankenstein, the curse of the mummy, the curse of the werewolf. I'm not saying I've seen these films but you get the idea. But in the Bible, to be under a curse is a deadly, serious business. That is especially when it means being under the curse of God. It's what happened right at the beginning of the Bible when humanity turned away from the God who gave us existence and life, and as we declared our independence from him, in place of blessing, we found death, the curse of death. It's less sensational than the Hammer Horror version, uh, but I think there are some points of comparison. Uh, I think if someone fell under a curse in one of those old Hammer Horror films, uh, you might see certain things happen to them. Their skin would start sagging, their teeth and hair would maybe start falling out and they'd start staggering about, groaning about things, losing their car keys and so forth. When I look at myself... And I find precisely those things happening. It's all happening a little more gradually and slowly, perhaps, but they are the same sorts of things. It's called aging. And it's one of the symptoms 
of being under the curse of death. But even if you, can't, even if you can admit that you're aging, you still might be struggling to think of yourself as someone cursed by God. In which case, you'd be very like Peter in our reading. You see, so far as Peter was concerned, he was on God's side. He was on the side of the angels, at the side, in fact, of Jesus Christ, the Lord's anointed. He has even sworn to Jesus this. He said, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And I've no doubt that he said that with all sincerity. That is what he genuinely believed about himself. But what we see in these verses is that it really didn't take very much to expose where Peter's allegiance truly lay. The question comes, surely you are one of them, they ask him. And at that moment, Peter is shown to be more afraid of the servant girls and the others in the courtyard than he is afraid of the living God Almighty of the universe. At that moment, he would rather be cursed by God than admit in public his dependence on God and his allegiance to God's Son. In fact, that's what he says in verse 74. Then he began to call down curses on himself and he swore to them, I don't know the man. There's a little bit of debate about how to translate that verse, but it seems to me that that's a good translation. It seems very likely in the context what Peter's doing here is trying to back up what he's saying, his oath, his promise, by saying something like this, may I be cursed by God if this isn't true. I don't know the man. And then immediately a cock crowed. And Peter finally realised what he was really like. Where his heart really lay. His true condition before God. And he went outside and wept bitterly. So this is the question for us to begin with this afternoon. Have you had your Peter moment. Or for many of us here, have we foolishly drifted away from from that kind of right self-awareness of our condition before God? Can we still see this enormous fault line in our hearts? The fault line which means we'd rather not side with God. We'd really rather he wasn't there at all. And there will be occasions when, like Peter, we'd rather be cursed by him than depend upon him. Our hearts are, by nature, so corrupt, so distorted, so sinful, that we are all on our own, rightly under the curse of God. More than that, as Peter discovered, there will be situations that will show that we'd rather be cursed by God than side with God. We may not say anything like that. We may not believe it of ourselves much of the time. We may not feel it, but it is nonetheless the truth. Peter did not feel it, but he was forced to face up to it. And if Peter needed to face up to it, 
then so do we. So the question is, once we've realized that we are indeed under the curse of God, each and every one of us, what can we do? What happens next? Is there any hope? Well, take Judas. It's Matthew 27 and verses three and four. Judas is striking because he very clearly knows that he is under the curse of God. And he knows that because he knows his Old Testament well. He knows the verse in the law. This is Deuteronomy chapter 27 and verse 25. This verse says, Cursed is the man who accepts a bribe to kill an innocent person. And so in our passage, Matthew 27 verse 3 Uh, When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned unjustly, Judas was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. So you can see what's going on here. Just like Peter hearing that, that cock crow, Judas is prompted to recognize his true condition before God. When Judas sees Jesus condemned unjustly, He changes his mind and is seized by remorse. So what does he do? Well, the first thing he tries is to reverse the situation. Verse three, he tries to return the bribe of 30 silver coins to the chief priests and elders. Now, this approach is very easy for us all to identify with, I think. This is the Bart Simpson approach to sin and guilt. It is denial. I didn't do it. Nobody saw me do it. You can't prove anything. I suspect a great many of the lies we tell are because we don't want to, because we want to undo, at least in our minds, many things that we have said and done. Now, I don't know what Oscar Pistorius was thinking when he fired those lethal shots through the bathroom door, perhaps only he does. But I do know know what he was thinking afterwards. He was certainly thinking and wishing he could undo it, that he could wind time backwards. He was wishing it had never happened. That's the problem, isn't it? We can't reverse time's arrow. We can't undo what has been done. So perhaps there's another way to deal with Judas's sin and guilt. After all, he's come to the temple. It was the temple's business to deal with sin and guilt. That's what it was all about. So verse four, he confesses his sin. I have betrayed innocent blood. But just look also at the response he gets from that. What is that to us? That's your responsibility. Now, that's a very striking response, at least in two ways. First, it is the responsibility of the temple authorities too. They just won't admit it. You see, they know full well that those 30 silver coins are blood money. It was a bribe given to someone to betray someone who was innocent. But who gave that money to Judas? They did. But perhaps the most striking thing here is just how how useless the temple has become. 
It cannot deal with Judas's sin. It's impotent. It's not fit for purpose. We might well wonder what's going to become of it, which we'll come back to later. So he can't reverse the situation. The temple doesn't help. So what does Judas do? Well, I suppose most important to recognize here is what he doesn't do at this point. Critically, he doesn't turn back to Jesus at this point. In fact, he doesn't seem to remember anything that Jesus has said. He doesn't seem to have heard Jesus say those words from earlier in the gospel, come to me, all, of you, all you who are weary and burdened. He doesn't seem to have heard Jesus say, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He doesn't seem to have heard Jesus say that he's come to give his life as a ransom for others, redeeming them from death and curse. He doesn't seem to have heard Jesus say about his coming death at the Last Supper, this is my blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Was Judas deaf? Was he forgetful? Was he simply stubborn? It's hard to say in the end. But what we can say is that we are often dangerously like him. Whenever we say things like, I'm too guilty to go to church. I'm too sinful to pray. I'm not good enough to be a Christian. Whenever we say things like that, we are following in the footsteps of Judas. So what does Judas do? Well, verse five, he went away and hanged himself. Why did he do that? Why hanging? Well, I think it's because Judas knew another important verse from the law, from Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, which says this, that anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. As Judas hangs himself, is he trying to find release from his cursed state by seeking, if you like, an explicitly cursed death? Is he trying to find atonement, the kind of atonement that he failed to find in the temple? Or is he simply abandoning himself to his fate, abandoning himself to despair, giving in to his cursed state? Well, either way, let's just meditate briefly on the cursed, hanging body of Judas for a moment, hanging there on a tree. It's not, I know, a very pleasant image for us to dwell on. But it's here on purpose. It's standing here as a a gruesome reminder, a gruesome picture of the fate of anyone who tries to deal with their cursed state on their own. It stands here as a warning to those who fail to seek help for their cursed state. Just look at that body hanging there and reflect. This is the destiny of us all, that is, apart from Jesus. So then, Peter, 
has shown himself under the curse of death. And in his denial of Jesus, he has cemented that curse by calling down curses upon himself. Judas is under the curse of the law. And he has cemented that curse by hanging himself on a tree. I do want you to remember this. There is very little between Peter and Judas at this point. There are no good guys and bad guys among the disciples at this point. There are just bad guys and bad guys, all alike under the curse of God. And also keep in mind where this curse comes from. It comes from turning aside from the living God, from exchanging life for death, blessing for curse. And the justice of that curse is exposed in a kind of sharp relief. As the Son of God comes to dwell among us and humanity acts unjustly to destroy him. And at that moment, no one stands with him, not even Peter. We may not have been there, but that impulse to do away with God, to want to have nothing to do with him, that impulse lies deep within us all. That's the picture that Matthew is painting across these chapters. Everyone is under the curse of God, which is in the end the curse of death. The tears flooding down Peter's face stand as a reminder that that really does include everyone, even those who have thought of themselves as naturally in the rights with God. And the rope around Judas's neck as he hangs from a tree stands as a, a sober reminder then of the fate of those who try to deal with that curse on their own. And what we then see in the very careful details of Matthew's account of the death of Jesus, those things working themselves out in the way Jesus dies. Remember first what the law says about this. The curse of God, the judgment of God, will come when innocent blood is spilled. How much more then when that blood comes from God's own son? So first of all, across these verses, we see the curse of God which follows the betrayal of an innocent man. Look at uh, chapter 27, verse 45, for example. Darkness comes over all the land. Or verse 51, the earth shook and rocks split open. Darkness and earthquakes are stock images of judgment and curse in the Bible. Uh, seeing these things, right at the end of our passage, seeing these things prompts the centurion and those with him to exclaim out aloud in terror at what's happening. Wow, he must have thought that the, he- the heavens are angry about this one. Someone must have really messed up today. A great injustice must have happened against someone uniquely important, even a, even a son of God. So the curse and the judgment, they do come, just as God has warned. But here's the twist. Who bears them? Does Peter bear that curse? Remember, he's called down the curses of God upon himself. You might think that he might rightly bear that curse. But no, only one person in this scene bears that curse. Jesus bears the curse of God. 
Turning back a page, verse 31, they led him away to crucify him. That is, they led him away to hang him on a tree. We've seen already, anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. Verse 46, as the darkness of God's judgment reaches its climax, Jesus cries out. He's quoting from Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We were looking at this very psalm a couple of weeks ago on on Sunday morning. It's It's a lament of David suffering under the curse and shadow of death. Well, Jesus takes those words, the cry of humanity in all its God-forsaken mortality. He takes those words upon his lips. And then in verse 50, he cries out again and gives up his spirit, willingly taking upon himself the curse of death. And just look what happens. Turn over and look what happens. First of all, verse 51, the temple is shut down for good. We've seen already the temple cannot deal with sin and guilt and curse. It's not fit for purpose. Well, now it's over. The curtain split by a divine action from top to bottom. That is it for the temple. So where can we go now to find atonement and blessing and life, all those things the temple symbolized? Remember, that was Judas's problem. Where to go when the temple proves useless, impotent? Tragically, he sought his own solution, we've seen. But just read on here. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. It'd be wonderful to see that, wouldn't it? The look on their families' faces as they turned up for Sunday lunch. But here then is life. And at that particular moment in space and time and history, the curse of death on Jesus is being sucked dry. It's being used up. And so, inevitably, life bursts out. It's only a picture, of course, a little foretaste of the, of the bigger resurrection to come for those who trust in Jesus. But it's a wonderful picture, nonetheless. So then we have seen these three, Peter, Judas, and Jesus. Peter calling down curses upon himself. Judas aware of the curse of God, but unable to find a way out from under it. And finally, Jesus willingly taking the curse of death upon himself. So what in the end distinguishes Peter from Judas? Only this. Judas takes his own curse. Peter waits. And eventually he comes back to Jesus. And his curse is taken by Jesus. That's the only difference between them. Understand that, and we've understood the cross. So who then will we identify with this Good Friday? With Judas, bearing our own curse, rightly, justly, Or with Peter, as he waits and seeks Jesus, who came to bear the curse in our place.